This is what we believe as a church. This is actually on the website, almost word for word. It says, We believe with firm resolve that there is only one God who created the heavens and the earth. God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three persons are equal in substance, being eternal, or I'm sorry, being eternal nature, power, will, and glory. This is both mysterious and beautiful to us. Out of his passion and love, he created all people in his image. This means that like God, we have emotions, creativity, and passion. From week to week, we won't have so much to tackle. This week we do. I'm sorry for that. There is no other way for me to dice it up. Um, now, the Trinity, <laughs> the Trinity is something that's been real confusing to people over time. Okay? This is basically what we believe as a church. That there is one God. One God with one will, one direction, one purpose. But He does exist eternally eternally, in three different persons. This is what we call the Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. Tertullian came up with it a long, 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 long time ago, right? Basically means tri-unity. So it's not explicitly said Trinity anywhere in the Bible. But implicitly, it is very thorough throughout the Bible, alright? And this is a mystery to us. And many people over time, they've, they've tried to come up with mnemonics and pictures and devices to help us understand what the Trinity is. Some of you have seen them. Three-leaf clovers, right? Three-legged stools. Some people say the Trinity is like a tree, because you have branches and you have trunk, and then you have the base, the roots. Some people say it's like water, because you can have it in ice, steam, or fluid form. Some people say it's a person who can be a governor, a farmer, and a father, all at the same time. People have tried long and hard to come up with something that can make our hearts grasp the complicated thing that really is the Trinity. But all of those pictures really fall short, real quickly for some of them, at some point. They all fall short. Augustine says this. He says, If you deny the Trinity, you will lose your soul. But if you try to explain the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. And he's right. It's difficult. For 2,000 years, people have been trying to discuss what this means. And because of the difficulty of explaining it, there have been a ton of really bad, junky theologies that have come about. Real weird stuff that have come about trying to get us to understand and grasp what this is because mankind really ultimately struggles, you and I, we ultimately struggle letting God be the way God is. We don't like mystery. Our flesh doesn't like mystery. We want things to be totally explainable. I do. I want things to be easy for me to wrap my mind around. I was telling some guys the other day that our brain, it weighs two pounds. And it's fallen. It's cracked with sin. And it's got all the effects of drinking and smoking and whatever fumes you've huffed back in the day or whatever. I mean, it's got all this thing. And yet we try with this, this weird two-pound organ, we try to imagine what God is really like. <laughs> it really is hard, isn't it? We don't like it. We want it to be explainable. And when we do mess up the Trinity, when we do foul it up, it's usually in the department of devaluing one or more of the persons of the Trinity. Most typically Christ and the Holy Spirit. Right? I love this, this quote that Herman Bavinck says. It's probably not up there, but it says, In the confession of the Trinity, which is what we're dealing with today, throbs the heart, the heartbeat of the Christian religion. Every error results from or may be traced back to a wrong view of this doctrine. Man, that's a big statement. But it's true. Some of you guys have heard creeds come about, like the Nicene Creed, 
the Athanasian Creed, Chalcedonian Creed, Apostles' Creed, all these creeds through the history of the church. And if you've heard them, you probably thought what I've thought. Why did they take all the time to do that? I mean, what's, what, why, why a creed? I don't even get that. What for? The reason creeds became what they were and were assembled is because you'd have these guys like Sibelius, like Arius, like, like all these different theologians that would come and they would know what to say. They would have a very good preach on them, I guess you could say. And the church would be watching a people get really confused. And they're like, you know what? This is tough. We need to come up with a creed that really states what a good Orthodox church believes. And so the Nicene Creed is a good example. That's very heavy Trinitarian. You see a lot of Trinity discussed in the Nicene Creed. Right? That came about because of bad theology, which is one of the reasons we're dealing with this today. Okay? So, as we go through this, even though they're old, some of these failed theologies, I'm going to go take you through three of them. Even though they're old, make no mistake, they are alive and they are kicking and they are very well. And as I talk about them, watch and see if any of them are inside of your theology on the Holy Spirit. Because honestly, I found a little bit of myself in one of these. Honestly, whenever I was reading through this, I could see where I was ten years ago. Five years ago. I could see the effects of some of this thinking, even in the way I looked at God, the personality of God, the physics, the, the personhood of God, right? One of them, real quickly, and listen, if you don't remember the names of these, that's okay. I probably won't remember them in a few months either. But one of the big failed theologies is concerning God and mode. Some call it modalism. This is all it is. Like I said, if you forget modalism 30 minutes, that's fine. Okay? Modalism is this. God is one, he's singular, and he puts on different hats for the different roles. He's different modes to different people at different times, but he's one God. Okay? Like an actor. Trying to play three different roles, but he ends up being a one-man show. Changing hats, changing dialects, so that he could be one of the different persons of the Trinity at different times. It's called modalism. It's not right. It's not a good theology at all. It's tempting though, isn't it? It's tempting to believe that. Because we can let God be one and not complicate things. Doesn't have to get complicated. Hey, God's one. What's the big deal? Let him be one, Luke. There's a problem with that though. What it does is it denies the interpersonal relationship that God has with himself. That sounds weird, doesn't it? There's a relationship that God has with Jesus, that God has with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has with Jesus. There's interpersonal engaging and and interaction between the three. And modalism denies that. It says it doesn't exist. Think of the baptism of Jesus. Okay, I think we have this scripture we're going to put up there, right? Listen, if you don't have a, a Bible, we have some on the table. Grab one on the way out if you don't have one or if you don't like yours, and you can have that. Those are for free. It says this in Mark 1.10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Okay? Now, what you have here is you have all three persons of the Trinity at the same place, at the same time, interacting with each other. You have the Father, God the Father, speaking over who? God the Son. With what coming down and alighting like a dove. The Holy Spirit wasn't a dove. He came like a dove. Okay, You have the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not a thing. It's not an it. It's a person. Okay, We usually mess up there too when regarding the Holy Spirit. There's other places too. And we're not going to go through this, but all these are on the notes. You have the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Once again, the Father speaking over the Son. Jesus is standing right there. 
God speaking over him. You have Romans 8. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us. Who's he interceding to? God the Father. God the Spirit is praying to God the Father. You have Jesus, John 17. Right before he's put up on the cross, he's praying in the garden. Who's he praying to? God the Father. Modalism stops making sense real fast. He can't be the same thing, just changing hats. We see too much evidence contrary to that in the Bible, right? So what does this mean? There's a beautiful dynamic shown in the scriptures regarding this. It's meant to really woo us and lead us and draw us in, not freak us out. It's okay to let God be three different. It's okay. We freak out on that a little bit. It's okay for the Trinity to exist. It's all right. Let God be three. It's okay. It's, it's, it's a beautiful doctrine. We support it as a church. It's very orthodox. I mean, in fact, if you, regardless of legacy church, if you're out kicking tires on churches, and, or at some point in the future, 20 years, 30 years, 3 months, you're looking at a church, if they teach a weird doctrine on the Trinity, run as fast as your feet can carry you. Go. Because the problems are just going to get worse from there. It's just going to get worse. You start fouling up on this, things get really messy really fast. Another failed theology, the second one that I wanted to touch on, is what a lot of people call Arianism. All right. Now this is a pretty broad one. It just basically believes that Jesus was created at some point. Now whether he was created before the world does, or he was created way before the world does, there's different forms of Arianism. I don't really care about all that stuff. It's too technical for me. But I am telling you that it does believe that Jesus Christ was created. Now there's a problem with that, because if he's created, he came after God. By virtue of that, he's less than God. And that's what they believe. He does not share all the attributes in an equal place with God the Father. He has less attribute than God the Father. There's a reason I'm telling you all of this. Listen, this isn't just going to be me teaching you. Because after we talk about what we believe and the controversy therein, we're going to talk about why it matters to you, where it shows up in legacy, and what it matters for the city, okay? So pay attention to all this because it's going to come out here in just a little bit. Now, this is tempting to believe too. Arianism has got a little bit of a tempting thing to believe. We look at it. Why is it tempting for me? Because I could see Jesus coming through a virgin womb in a manger as a baby. So if you were to tell me Jesus was created and came after God, it's kind of, I mean, it looks, it looks pretty convincing. And after all, it's also tempting because we get to allow God the Father to still be the boss. We like someone to be the boss, don't we? Someone has to be the boss. So it might as well be God the Father. It can't be the Holy Spirit because He's too weird and we don't really understand Him. So it has to be God the Father being the boss. Jesus comes through a manger, so it can't be, or through a, a virgin in a manger, so it can't be Jesus being the boss. So you can see where that would be tempting. But there's a problem with it. There's a problem with Arianism at its core. It's because if Jesus Christ was created, then He is devalued and He is no longer God. If He is created and made... He is devalued, and He is no longer God, and that is big trouble for us when it comes to the cross. Big problems when you start stripping the deity away from Jesus Christ. And so we have some good biblical evidence, and I'm not going to take you through all of it, where Jesus Christ was not just the object of creation, He was the venue of creation. What I mean by that is, is Jesus Christ wasn't just the object and the recipient of being created, it was through Jesus Christ that everything was created. We see this in Hebrews 1. It says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Through whom? 
He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. You see, it was through Jesus that the world was created. He was there before there was anything to be there. John 1, 1 through 1-4, it really hits this hard. This is one of the highest Trinitarian, I think, verses that we have in the Bible. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on in verse 14, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, which is proof to us that it was Jesus. It says, He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. Once again, all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. This is important. Everything was made through Jesus Christ. right? Jesus was there in the beginning. Colossians 1, it says the same thing. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth. Things that you can see, things that you can't see. Created through Jesus. There's this quote that C.S. Lewis has. This will be up on the screen too. Listen, C.S. Lewis, I'm going to be giving you ideas of books. If you want to get a book on this stuff later on, if, if this starts touching some things that you're excited about, you want to read more on, I don't read a whole lot of C.S. Lewis, but in Mere Christianity, which a lot of schools consider an introductory theology book, it's actually considered a theology book. It doesn't really read like one, though. Um, it reads something a little bit more intimately. He really dials it in, I think, on these thoughts. This is what he says. All sorts of people are fond of repeating the statement that God is love. And we we do. We do say that a lot, right? But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, He was not love. Of course, but Luke, I mean, how can you... Luke, how can you be begotten and born like Jesus was, but eternal at the same time. I don't understand that, Luke. What about the manger? What about all of that? I mean, if you come after God, Luke, I mean, don't you have to be lesser? I mean, it still begs the question. This is what Lewis goes on to say. Once again, he really does a good job of this. He says this, When you beget, because we see this all the time in the Scriptures, that Jesus Christ was God's begotten Son. He is begotten, all right? When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. What God begets is God, just as what man begets is man. And what he'll do is, he'll go into this big explanation and illustration about, he's like beavers, for example. A father beaver begets a baby beaver, but he makes a place to live, a home, right? So he begets of his own kind, but he creates and makes of something outside of him. The home doesn't live. It doesn't have the essence of the beaver in it, right? So I beget my son. Jordan is my begotten, right? But I can make a piece of artwork that looks just like him. But that's not begotten. It's made. It doesn't have my life in it. It's not of me, right? That's what he's talking about right here. He goes on to say what God creates is not God, just as what man makes and creates is not man. There's a difference between being begotten and being made or being created. So we beget of our own kind, but we create of another, right? God begets, and He creates creation. We beget, and we create with creation. Okay? That sounds really high church, doesn't it? It sounds really out there. But it's not. Because Jesus is begotten of God. He's begotten of God. This simply means that He is fully God. He is just as fully God as my Son is fully man. Okay? That's very important for us. 
A third big mistake, this is where a lot of us are going to fall in right here, okay? A lot of us are going to slip a little bit more closer to this third one, which some call subordinationism, but don't, like I said, forget that word, forget I even said it. It's an offshoot of what I just spoke on, though, right? Of Arianism. And it's just that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are co-eternal, and they've always existed as long as God has existed, yet they're still not, they still don't have the rank that God the Father does. It's still God the Father, and they're still somewhere underneath that. Not really co-equal, not really equivalent. And that's where a lot of us can be. It's hard for us to believe that, it's just hard for us to see that there's not someone that is in charge. And we usually think that's God the Father. We won't really come out and say that. But in our minds, that's just the way it is. Especially when it comes to the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, that's just like some mystical force. Like in Star Wars, you know? Or like a Casper. Or some friendly thing that we tap into that is really an it, but not a him. Not a person. Not a real thing. We can really devalue the person of the Holy Spirit. It's very easy to do. There's this guy named R.A. Torrey. He wrote about this, and this is what he said regarding the Holy Spirit and its equivalency with Jesus Christ. Do you indeed regard the Holy Spirit as a real person, as Jesus Christ? As loving and wise and strong? As worthy of your confidence and love and surrender as Jesus Christ himself? We don't. Think about it. We don't a lot of times, do we? Think about it. With no, with no Holy Spirit, you're not saved. There's no salvation without that. There's no regenerate heart. They're equivalent in stature, and glory, and direction, and purpose, and track. They're equivalent. And this has massive implications, which I'm about to get into, but real quickly. How does this show up at Legacy? All right? How does the doctrine of the Trinity inform who we are as a church? Where does it show up in our day-to-day as a church? All right? I promised you we would talk about the doctrine, what it looks like here, what it means for you, what it means for the city. What it looks like for us here, it affects how we lead this church, and it affects how we do community. How we lead this church, probably one of the riskiest dangerous and most difficult formats to lead a church that there is. And it's called elder plurality. And what it means is this. It means that me and Chase and Kevin, we are all equal in stature, on the same purpose, the same direction, equal authority, equal calling. All of that is equal. I am not the boss. I'm not the boss. I'm not even the senior pastor. Jesus Christ is the senior pastor. I really mean that. And the three of us are elders that labor together. Now we differ in role. We differ in role, just like the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, and God differed in their roles, being equivalent in stature and glory, right? This is how we lead a church. We believe this. It affects us. It affects the way that we do this. I mean, think about it. Think about the Holy Spirit and God and Jesus Christ as we do this, God the Father and Jesus Christ as we do this, how they defer to each other. Don't they defer? I mean, Jesus comes right up out of the waters of being baptized. The Holy Spirit leads him into temptation, leads him into the wilderness. It says it just like that. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus Christ later on, after being resurrected and right before he ascended, said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit sent. Well, which is he? Is he leading or is he being sent? It's being both because they have different roles. Right? We see this all the time. We see the Holy Spirit coming in and regenerating your heart, turning it from stone to flesh to where it can respond to sin and respond to God. And that is a gift of God the Father to you because of the passionate work of God the Son. All equal in stature, all totally differing in their roles. Does this make sense? It's how we do this as a a church. We get this from the Bible, how we lead. 
Also community. I do have to say this. We do defer to each other in community. We see each other as equals in community. Because this is the temptation here, right? No one can speak into my life unless they have all their crud together, right? Unless they have all their stuff together. Unless you're that dude, don't be speaking into my life, right? But the Holy Spirit, God the Son, God the Father, the triunity, they lead us differently. They lead us differently in that. We'll explain that. What do you mean, Luke? It shows us that even though that we have equality as people, there's deference towards each other with a, stat, with, with a stature of humility, right? You're not better than the person next to you. By the way, you are the person next to you. You are that person next to you. You like to think that you've got your stuff together. You really don't. Now, you might have your stuff together more than the person next to you, but you probably have it together less than the person on the other side of you, right? We are all that person. We need help. We're all fallen. I mean, if you're sitting next to a Christian, think of it this way. You both were fallen at one time. Both rescued. Both passionately sought after. Both in community. You're equally buried, equally dependent, equally attacked, equally needy. None of you totally have it all together. And we do community on this premise. This is how we do community. With that firmly planted in the front of our minds. So, it affects the way we lead a church. It affects the way we do community. What does it mean for you personally? You're daily, you're every day. What does the Trinity matter? So when you wake up in the morning, how does the doctrine of the Trinity affect you? Well, like I said, if Jesus Christ was not fully God, you're in trouble. He's fully God. If He's not, you are in big trouble. I am in big trouble. Because the cross had no effect. If he's not fully God, the cross had no effect. Jesus was either an example pointing to God, or he was God. Does that make sense? These are not the same. How you look at that, the distinctions in how you look at who Jesus was, will define your entire existence. It will define how you look at God, how you think he looks at you, truly how he looks at you, and how you center your life. It affects all of that, whether he was fully man or not fully God or not. So because if Jesus, if he was just a mere man, just a mere example, a good person, a good prophet, someone just pointing to God, if he was created, if he was made, then he could no way, no way, shape, or form receive the punishment for all the sins of mankind. Only God can do that. Not only that, if he was just a mere person, a mere teacher, a mere prophet, just some part of creation, then he couldn't have been perfect. Couldn't have been perfect. Had to be fully God to do that. Well, why is that important that he was fully perfect? Because a perfect sacrifice is what was needed, is what is required to atone for your sins, to atone for the sins of mankind. So, perfection was required and perfect blood was needed. And you cannot do that and I cannot do that. And if Jesus was not fully God, then we are in big, big trouble. It affects our everyday. It affects whether we're working really hard to please God, because many God Jesus couldn't pull it off, right? Because if Jesus is created and He's made, He's just mini God Jesus. He's just sub sub God Jesus, little G God. And, and if that's the case, and He couldn't pull it off, and He couldn't totally cover us, that means we got some work to do, don't we? We got to start getting perfect really fast. But we don't have to because He was fully God. How do we know that? Because He was equal with God, equal with the Holy Spirit. Because the Trinity is true. It's a good doctrine, and we believe it. So, what does this matter for the city? How does the Trinity impact the doctrine of the Trinity? How does it impact the culture at large? Well, 
God did not just come to help us with our cosmic issue. Listen, he didn't even give us the answer to our cosmic issue. He became the answer to our cosmic issue. You know, we, listen, we live in an in a age where humanitarian aid is big. People love it. People, I mean, we're caught up in just being humanitarian towards each other, towards our fellow man. We live in a show-me world where people are sick of talk. I don't want to hear the talk anymore. I want to see some real help, some sweaty, visceral, gritty, personal, sacrificial help. And what we do is we watch TV and we see people with, you know, their ribs sticking out. And we see homes obliterated from whatever hurricane and we see all this need. And we'll fly across the ocean and we'll write a check and we'll do whatever. Because why, why is it that we do that? Why is it that it is in us to be humanitarian like that? Because God agrees with you. He's a bigger one than you are. And we're created in His image. It's important. God too said, talk is not enough. Talk is cheap. He too said, action is required. He too agrees and said there will be a sweaty, gritty, visceral, personal, sacrificial love shown. But you are the person with your ribs sticking out. You are the person with the flies around your head. You are the person that's homeless, obliterated. That's you. And he did. He didn't just cross the void of an ocean to go overseas and help build a little village. He crossed the void into mankind. Right? He didn't just write a check just to make himself feel better. He wrote a check with his life. I mean, we are the beneficiaries as Christ followers of the greatest humanitarian effort ever shown. Not from just some human, but from the perfect God-man. So we understand this language, the same language that the culture understands. You see how the Trinity is not just some theological dust ball with no relevance. We understand... We understand what humanitarian effort means. Listen, when we pull our hands back from working with the culture, it needs to smell like the effects of sin. We need to understand what humanitarian aid is. But we need to not do it just so we can feel better about ourselves. We need to do it as an outflow of what was done for us. We are recipients of that. It was done for us first. That we might do. And they need to know that when we're doing it. It's important. It means a lot for the city. It's not a dust ball. The culture, it knows this, it speaks it well, sometimes it even pretends to do it. So, we know what it means to be humanitarian. That's what it means. Now, real fast, I did that uber fast. I'm going to jump into creation really quick, okay? That's all I felt like I had time to do with the Trinity. With creation, I probably have even less. So listen, I'm not talking about dinosaurs, I'm not talking about carbon dating, I'm not going to talk about how long the day was, I'm not going to talk about any of that. I'm going to just pick one thing, drop in, do the best I can, jump out. So if you want to ask a question later on, feel free to do that. But I wanted to talk about the statement that we had on our beliefs, which is God created everything from absolutely nothing. Alright? And mankind is the pinnacle of this creation, even, even looking like God himself, even in the image of God. This is huge. Very first verse, the very first chapter, of the very first book in the Bible says, in the beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. He did this. He also did it out of nothing. This is what theologians call ex nihilo, which is just Latin for out of nothing, okay? God created everything out of things unseen. It says this in Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, we have a hard time with this. 
And to be honest with you, Christians, they get a little freaked out when it comes to things like this. Because we see the textbooks. Listen, I grew up in it. We see the textbooks and science, their explanation of how things came about, it sounds a whole lot more convincing than God spoke and it came, right? We see the artist's renditions. We see what people think it might have looked like. And we look at that and everyone's got PhD and a bunch of other letters behind their name. And they say it went another way. And so for us to look at this and just read, and God spoke and it came into existence, it becomes difficult for us to believe. What Christians have done over time, what Christians have done over time is they've compromised. They've tried to take the two and marry them. They've tried almost like almost like God had to rent creation out for the weekends, you know, just to kind of make it look a certain way and get his and get and get, get science's permission to do something a certain way. But he didn't have to do that, right? God actually created science. I can attest, growing up in school, because this is what I went to school for, Christians, Christianity, it's seen as very medieval. It's seen as very medieval. Modern evolutionary science is seen as this remedy, this beautiful remedy to ancient stupidity. It is, but it's not that way. We are tempted to look at that and go, well, maybe... It happened just like evolution said. And maybe the Bible's a little bit wrong. Maybe the Bible's just a little bit off on how they said things happened. Maybe we should be listening to what the, the mouths and the, and the megaphones of creation has always said. But let me tell you, if you do that, you do it too much, it's going to expose a lack of faith in God and what He actually said. He said it came out of nothing. He said everything came out of nothing. That means out of absolutely nothing. Science says it came from somewhere. It says everything came from something, Right? There is no thing that came out of nothing. That's science's explanation. But now if you were to press your average run-of-the-mill scientist, secular God-denying scientist, toward the very beginning, where did that come from? Well, it came from this. Well, where did that come from? Well, it came from this. Keep pressing, and they draw a big, fat, blank stare, and an I don't know, because they don't know. Okay? So, science in general... It's just peeking under the wrappings of God's creation and wondering and speculating about how it might work. And this could be good at its best. At its best, science does a very good job of reflecting God's glory, saying, look how creative it is. I mean, look at the majestic vistas and the incredible intricacy. Look at the passion and the love poured into. I mean, at best, good science reflects and draws glory to God. At worst, At worst, it spits in its author's face. At worst, it looks and it explains away the very God that started everything. At worst, it's the height height of intellectual immaturity and it's a fever pitch of pride. At worst, that's what it is. We're tempted to back out on how God created everything. Now, not only did God create everything from nothing, not only did He do that, not only did He just... Snap his fingers, say a word, initiate it, and have everything come. Out of all of creation, out of everything, you were the best part. You were the best part. You were the pinnacle. You were the part where the artist leans back at the end of the day, wiping his hands with a big grin on his face, saying, of all the things I've done, and they're all good, all the things I've done are good, this is the best. I cannot quit looking at this. This I'm really excited about. You're the best part. You're the pinnacle of this creation. He did this... In his own image, where he did it for no other part of his creation. He made man in his own image, where he did not do that in any other part of his creation. So, let me tell you. Do not be intimidated. Don't be intimidated by mankind's abuse of science. I'm a big science fan. 
I love science. I love what it tells me about God and His beauty and His passion. Don't be intimidated by the abuse of it. Don't. The people who preach that, the people who preach a God-denying, secular, modern view of evolution, the people who preach that, they act like they have the answers. They don't really have the answers either. They're just acting like that. They're asking the same questions you are. They don't know where their conscience came from. That's not supposed to evolve. That's against natural selection. They don't understand sacrificial love. They'll go off and talk about how, well, I saw a dolphin do it once. You know, he sacrificed for his baby, so I think animals have it too. So, therefore, I believe my theory is right. Listen, they don't believe that. They, this is all they have, and it lets you keep your sin. That's the beautiful thing about the doctrine of evolution. You can believe it, and you can still keep your sin, so it works. But I'm telling you, they have the same questions, because I was one of them. Late at night, when no one's around, you're asking yourself these questions. Don't be intimidated. All right. There's this guy, Charles Bukowski. He has this quote. He says, For those who believe in God, most of the big questions are answered. But for those of us who can't readily accept the God formula, the big answers don't remain stone-written. I am my own God. We are here to unlearn the teachings of the church, state, and our educational system. We are here to drink beer and kill in war and to laugh at the odds and live our lives so well that death will tremble to take us. I have an idea. I, I, have a, I believe this guy was asking himself the big questions. We are different. We are different than just every other part of creation. Cocker Spaniels are not thinking about the deep, complex, philosophical facts of life. They're not doing it. Canaries aren't either. We are different from the rest of creation. So, where is this found? Practically at Legacy Church. Listen, I know, listen, if you're a science person in here, I know I just totally botched that up because I was very oversimple. I was oversimplified to the upper because I can't spend much more time on it. Like I said, if you have questions, text them in. We'll answer them. But where is this found? How does the Imago Dei, being in the image of God, how does that inform our church family? Not only that, I mean, at the same time, we can answer what it means for the city. Not only can we answer what it means for legacy, we can answer what it means for the city. I will tell you, we will always be, at some point, till the day... Christ comes back, we will always as a church be involved with the city to a certain extent where we're trying to honor and reestablish the Imago Dei in people's lives. People forget or don't know or aren't ready to believe that they are made in the image of God. They feel like their lives have no value. Part of our role as a church in the community and the culture at large is working on that. Honoring the Imago Dei in their lives. Honoring the fact that the image of God is stamped on them, right? Think about it. The people that have been written off by society, those who've been raped, molested, aborted, abused, homeless, orphaned, addicted, right? I mean, to some extent, these moments, these realities, they start to strip away that God-imaging Imago Day we have. It starts to strip it away. Add a few paychecks that don't come, a few nights in the street, wait till you're begging for money, you're begging for food, it starts to make you feel subhuman after a while. Subhuman. We learned this in Tampa Bay when we were working with the homeless. It takes an average of two years for a person that is totally sane to go totally insane strictly by living on the street. Because people look around you enough, they ignore you enough, you start feeling like you're not a human anymore. Right? The image of God is totally left. There is no Imago Day on them anymore. So, sin sticks to us. Whether it's something that 
has happened to us or something that we do to someone else, we all go through seasons where it falters for us. The community, the culture at large, those very far from God, they deal with it to a whole different level. So, we want to work as hard as we can at honoring and reestablishing this feeling of your life has value, and it doesn't have value because you're a pretty cool deal. It has value because you're stamped in the image of God, and someone came for you to rescue you. Ergo, you have a lot of value, right? Now, evolution will tell you it's good that they're out of the picture because it actually enhances the gene pool. It does. I'm sorry, that's the hard truth. I wish I could go more into the philosophical fallacies of evolution because they're, they're numerous and they're easy. Um, but the fact is, is, hey, if they're homeless, it's good. Go ahead and get them out of the gene pool. I mean, obviously there's some problem with them that they can't work, some problem with them that they can't think normally, so get them out of here. You know, if they're addicted, gosh, get that out of the gene pool. Get all these things out of the gene pool so that we can rise to be more supreme as the human race. God looks at it and he says something else, doesn't he? He says, that person's in my image. That person's in my image. As a church, we want to honor that. I'll tell you, the very first, when we were in a living room, when there was just five of us in a living room, the very first way that we wanted to do this was through the laundromat. Now listen, I know I talk about this all the time. It's been a great laboratory for us to kind of spell things out. For those of you who don't know, we show up every Friday, we hand out quarters and give coffee away at a laundromat. All right, It's very simple. It's not a big deal. It's not brain surgery. We would just show up, give them a handful of quarters, give them some coffee, sit down and talk to them. But in that... You're going to talk to some people that are addicted. You will meet some people that are homeless. In that, there are people that have been raped. In that, there are people who have been left by husbands. Um, people that are, you know, grew up with no parents at all in some home. You see all of this. You, you, it's firsthand. It's right in your face. Listen, there are people that I know. I'm the only person on planet Earth that knows their full name. Think about that for a minute. It hit me on the way home the other day. Think about that. What if no one on this planet knew your story? You're just a number. Just a person. No one even knew your full name. Man. I mean, do you think that person feels just as human as you do? I mean, there's a subhuman thing that starts to take over. There's something that comes. And to convince that person that their life has value can only be rooted in the doctrine of the Imago Dei. That's why it's important for the city. That's where it will be found for us as a church. How will we do this in the future as a church? Will it always be wrapped up in a laundromat? No, I, I certainly hope not. You know, that's just a few of us coming every week. You know, we have the same fixed people that kind of come in. Anyone wants to do that's fine. It's just that it's at a weird time. We have the same people coming to do it, right? But I mean, with the missional communities, listen, if you're growing as a Christian at all, you will find yourself bumping into people that are homeless, addicted, totally oppressed in some way, shape, or form. You will find that. You'll be there if you're growing. If you're not growing, if you're not on God's mission, you probably won't. Okay, But if you are growing and you intend on growing, <laughs> you're going to smell like it. You're going to smell like the effects of sin on mankind. It's just going to happen. The Amago Day is something you need to know. The image of God is a doctrine that's it's important for us. Now, real quickly as I try to finish this out real fast. What does this matter to you individually? Where does the doctrine of creation have to do with your normal every day to day? Well, your worth, your significance needs to be fueled by the image of God, the Imago Dei, and nothing else. If you've put anything else in there, you're just a slave to it, and it will get worse. If you find anything else to define you 
other than the fact of God's opinion, you will be a slave to that thing. I mean, think about it. In the very beginning, the very beginning, where did we get our worth? We got it from God in the garden. Adam, the only way Adam even knows to look at himself is how God tells him to look at himself. That's it. I mean, Adam walked around and said, well, God said, I'm very good, I'm very good. He didn't say that to himself. He didn't say, I'm a pretty big deal. I'm a pretty pretty good package. He didn't say that because he was good at naming the animals. You know what I'm saying? He didn't do that because he behaved well enough or he performed well enough. It wasn't like God said, you're very good because you're a pretty good performer. You're a very good worker and you don't cuss, you know? So yeah, you're a good deal. That's not how it happened. The only way Adam even knew to measure himself is by God's word, right? What did sin do? It broke it. And we traded values. We traded values. We traded God's idea for our value for our idea of our value. We traded God's idea of what we're worth for our idea of what we're worth. And this is not how it ought to be. You are not your portfolio. You are not your dress size. You're not your GPA. You're not what the culture says about you. You're not what your wardrobe says about you. You're not what your... We measure ourselves the wrong way. We don't receive from the very fact that we are made in God's image. Not only that, but Jesus Christ came to reprogram us from that idolatry. He did. I mean, Jesus is perfect. We're not. But He is. Perfectly came, perfectly lived, perfectly died, was perfectly preserved, so He could raise, appear, perfectly collect, perfect family, And do it perfectly, not because we're perfect, but because He died perfectly for us, and He behaved perfectly, so that we wouldn't have to be perfect, right? That's what should define us. Not only the fact that God, and we're in God's image, so that should give us a good common value on all of mankind, but now, as a Christian, you are wrapped up in the image of God all over again. It's in the image of Jesus Christ, and the passion He showed for you. So you can go ahead and get your worth from something else. You can go ahead and get your worth not from work anymore, not from your spouse, not from your friends, not from culture, not from what you can take on a test and not from how much you can make. You can go ahead and get your worth from who Jesus Christ says you are, from who God says you are. Does that make sense? That's what it means for us individually. Because if you see yourself through the eyes of a career or a magazine cover or just culture at large, then you've defined yourself by creation's point of view. But if you define yourself by the way God sees you, like Adam did originally before the fall, then you define yourself by the Creator's point of view. It's a big difference. 